When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we made it. We finally are done with this week. It has been a very busy week. In fact, not every time I can start a video by saying, hey, we avoided a war. We avoided World War III, right? That's the big news. We have Iran and the US backing away from conflict. Looks like things are settling down a little bit. People are receding back into their corners, which is a great thing to see happen. So that happened this week. I'm going to be talking about that. And we have Carlos Ghosn here. This is the most famous fugitive in the world right now. He escaped Japan bail fled to Lebanon. Now he's stating his case against Nissan. He thinks that this company was really out to get him, and he has specific motives in mind that he thinks Nissan has against him. So he sits down, he explains in this interview the motives that he thinks that Nissan had for going after him. And of course, we have my portfolio update as well as my dividend income for December. So last month, the numbers are in. I got my dividend income. It was a record-breaking month, bigger than I've ever had in my portfolio. I'm going to be talking about that. I'm going to be sharing my spreadsheet of how I track dividends. So I'll be able to share this with you guys. And we'll be going over that as well. So let's go ahead and start with my portfolio. It's an investment strategy, really. And the entire overarching goal of it is to create an additional revenue stream of passive income, an ever-growing stream of passive income. That's the title of it. That's the goal of it. All the little investment strategies and the things that I do and the companies that I research are all aimed at accomplishing this goal of creating passive income. Now, what is passive income? That's income that you don't have to actively work for. So that's something that you set up or that you do a little bit amount of work to set it up and then it generates you money residually in return. So that's what passive income is, the way that I'm using the term anyway. Now, I use a specific way of investing where I broke out all the different sectors into different pies, and then I picked out my favorite companies that are dividend growth companies in each one of these sectors. So I can go into utilities here, and I selected four of what I think are the best utility companies, and then I allocated a certain percentage to them. And then every time that these utility companies pay me dividends, that gets added to my cash balance and reinvested back into my overall portfolio. So the way the M1 works in particular, the dividends don't necessarily go right back into the company that paid it. In fact, they rarely do. Instead, they get added together and they go to whatever company is underweight. So right now it looks like telecom and industrials are a little bit underweight. That's where all the dividends will go until this slice goes back up to where it's supposed to be. So that's how M1 Finance works. If you're interested in looking at the different slices here, like if you want to see whatever one I don't click on, right? So you can look at any of these. There's a link in the description of this video. You can open it up and click on any of these slices and see any of the companies that I hold if that's of any interest to you. So like I said, the whole overarching goal of this portfolio is to create passive income. Now I'm doing that, I look week by week and see the amount of dividends that I'm getting paid. But what good is a goal if you don't track it, if you don't see the progress that you're making? This whole spreadsheet is to track progress, it's to keep me motivated to invest, it's so that I can visually see the progress that I've made. Because I learn pretty visually, I think when I'm able to see a history of where I started and where I am now, it's pretty amazing to see the growth of the portfolio. Now this spreadsheet is something a lot of people asked for. So what I did is I made it available to you guys for the low price of $9.99. So there's a promo code you can sign up for it now. I'm just messing with you guys. It's completely free. It's in the description of this video. You just need to click on the link. 
open it up, then click file, make a copy, name the copy, whatever you want, and then you can use that. It's yours completely free. So you're free to use this spreadsheet and plug in your own data, but I'll show you exactly what I focus on. We have pretty much three different graphs here, three different charts from the spreadsheet. One of them, my favorite one is the actual monthly income. This is just so simple, so straightforward. How much money did I earn in dividends every single month? I started tracking this from January of 2018, and now we have December of 2019. So that is the first basic graph. Then I have one that has a projection of what the monthly income will be in the future. And then I have one that is just my overall portfolio value mapped out over a timeline. So this is similar one that's right on the M1 dashboard, but it's a little bit more smoothed out but a very straightforward graph right there. The one I wanna focus on is this actual monthly income. This gives me such an eagle eye view of where I've came from. So January of 2018, I did not have a passive stream of income. It did not exist for me. That wasn't a thing that existed in my world. There was nobody paying me money for doing nothing. So that wasn't something that ever happened. And then I decided to start this portfolio and make that a goal to create that passive stream of income. And you can see that that goal is starting to move forward. Month over month of investing and compounding this money, you can see that it's gone up over time. Now, last month, I had a record-breaking month. I was paid $343 in dividends. That's a lot of money to earn without doing really anything for it. I didn't clock in for any of that money. I didn't lift a single finger for it. That was money, hundreds of dollars now, $343 paid to me for not doing anything for it. So what I had to do was the upfront work. I had to buy shares in these companies upfront, but that work is done. That labor is behind me. This is money that I'm now earning in the future without doing anything for it. So this is a great situation to be in where you get that type of money. And now my portfolio is starting to help invest itself. So this money is going back into the portfolio. This $343, that's enough money to buy some pretty expensive shares of some good companies. So that's a decent amount of money there. You can see that it's up quite a bit from the previous month before that though. So November, it was only $168, went up over double to $343. But that's pretty expected. If I look back to November of 2018, it was $42. And then it went up to $92 in December the next month. So it over doubled there as well. The same companies that paid November of 2018 are the same companies that pay November of 2019. So you see these patterns year over year. I can look at December of 2018. I was paid $92 in dividends. December of 2019, $343. That's quite an increase over time. I want this to continue to go in this direction where year over year, I'm drastically improving my passive income stream. I want to, by the end of 2020, possibly get to the point where I'm averaging over $400 a month in dividends. That's going to take a lot of funding, a lot of compounding. I hope that it's something that I'm able to accomplish, but either way, I'm going to track it here. I'll show you guys how it goes. This graph that this part of it is a mystery right now you're gonna be able to see as this gets filled in month over month. I'm gonna show that and the progress of it. I'll give an update every single month. Now I have some other graphs here. These are the average monthly income. This is a formula that an accountant friend of mine put together that takes like the previous eight months or something. And then it averages it out with certain metrics and it tries to project the next year based off of that. So this gives you a rough idea based off of your compounding, your deposit schedule, where you're gonna be with dividends in the future. So I think this is an interesting graph as well. And then this last one, the portfolio value. I don't know what my portfolio value is going to be by the end of 2020. I'm putting in $2,000 a month. Um, you know, that's $24,000. But if the market goes down, my portfolio value actually could go down in value. But either way, 
I think that this is a motivating thing to see. Even if it has dips or slumps or times it hasn't gone up as much, it's still cool to track and see how much wealth that you're building over time. So investing is a fun thing, guys. It's not a dreaded thing to do. This isn't something that should be a pain in the neck to do. When I get money paid to me, I have lots of things that I could buy. There's lots of fun things out there to buy. And the thing that I really look forward to the most is putting money into this and seeing this pile of assets grow and the pile of passive income grow. So it's something that I think that you should look forward to doing. Having these visualizations, I think makes it more of a fun thing that that you look forward to. So that's part of the purpose of this whole thing. But there's a link in the description for this sheet. You can click and make a copy of it and use it for whatever you want. You can also use all this data here, which is automatically populated if you fill this in. You can use that to make whatever different visualizations you want. So if you're good at making charts in Google, you can make all sorts of charts with the same set of data. Okay, well, let's go ahead and talk about some news. The first I want to talk about is the whole Iran situation. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. All of our soldiers are safe. Iran appears to be standing down which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. So there you hear it from President Trump. Essentially, he's saying that Iran is backing off. And what they did is a symbolic attack. They needed to strike the U.S. They needed to do something. They had a lot of people calling for vengeance. In order to save face, they have to show, hey, we're standing up against the U.S., right? So what they do is they carefully orchestrate an attack that targets a U.S. base knowing that it won't kill any Americans. And they do that to satisfy both sides. They need to satisfy their own citizens and save face, showing that they're standing up against the U.S., but they want to do so in a way that won't actually provoke the U.S. If they went out and they killed a bunch of Americans, that would provoke the U.S. to respond. And President Trump has said that he would respond disproportionately. I don't think Iran wants to deal with that. So they responded in a way that wouldn't provoke the U.S. to do anything further. And now Iran's saying this was our big attack, right? There are even reports that they're telling their people that they killed Americans when they didn't. So there's two different messages going on here. The U.S. is saying we suffered no losses in this. This really didn't do any damage, but it's good that Iran is backing down for both sides. And Iran is saying we did a lot of damage. We, we strike the U.S. You know, we really hit them back. Now, all of that makes sense. And when this news came out, the markets, it was a huge sigh of relief. The S&P 500 went up, all the different markets went up. This was a far less severe response than what was expected. The more perplexing news, at least originally, was this Boeing plane that crashed, right? At first, it was a mechanical error. It crashed. It actually sent Boeing stock down a little bit because people thought, well, if a Boeing plane crashed, this is not going to be good for the stock. But Early on, there was a lot of skeptics because this Boeing plane crashed leaving Tehran, and it was the same day that Iran launched those missiles. So a lot of people early on were skeptics, saying there's no way that this is coincidence. It had to have something to do with Iran. And U.S. intelligence agencies, as well as Canadian, came out and said, yes, this was Iran that shot down the plane. And Iran originally denied that. At first, I thought, what is the reason that they would deny that? You know, they, they shot down the plane, and then they're going to deny they shot it down. I thought that maybe there was some ill-conceived plot of trying to take down Boeing stock by taking down a Boeing plane, an American plane, and trying to paint it as a mechanical issue. But it has later came out, as we see, that Iran now takes credit. They say, hey, we accidentally shot down this plane. You know, tensions were high. We made a mistake and shot it down. So on top of that, there's actual video evidence of the plane being shot down. I don't feel much like playing it. It's a sad, senseless death of 176 people that was because of a human error. 
Iran is saying that they just something went wrong, human error, you know, chain of command, something got lost, this plane was shot down. So Boeing is not going to be factored into this at all. Okay, so it's time to jump into the interview with Carlos Ghosn. He was the leader of Nissan and Renault. These are two different car companies. He was the chairman of both of them running the merger of them at the same time. So Renault is a French car company. Nissan is a Japanese car company. They have two very different cultures and they did not get along. In fact, Japan considered Renault to be a very inferior car company. And what Carlos was doing here was merging the two companies together and he was implementing this merger and Japan did not like that. Nissan did not like that happening. They thought that they were having their brand diminished, that this icon of a company for Japan was going to be diminished by merging it into Renault and making it more of a, a foreign holding to them, a foreign company to them. In fact, they thought that Renault was going to take majority control over Nissan, despite Nissan being a bigger company. So Japan didn't like this. The, the government did not like this merger going on. Nissan didn't like it. But this is what Carlos Ghosn was pushing for. Now, he did turn around Nissan. He made it a profitable company. But when he started making this plan for merging these two companies, things started to fall apart for him. He got charged with a lot of things. And he explains in this interview some of the things that he was charged with. Is there anything you would have done differently? Any any regrets? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, I regret I didn't take the job of General Motors. That's my regret. I had a clear proposal you know, to be the CEO of General Motors. If I wanted more money, I would have left for General Motors and probably was sold. And at least in the United States, I would not have been crucified for every single yen or euro. I would get more than whatever standards I have in mind. So this is true. He was offered a job for GM. That shows what a big figure he was in this industry, that he pretty much could have ran any car company of his choosing. Now, he brings up being crucified for every single yen that he earned, and that is the big problem with what happened to Carlos. See, if he went to a company like GM, that is an American company. Now, America, you might not know, but we have no problem paying CEOs a lot of money. We pay them millions and millions of dollars. We're willing to write really big paychecks to attract the best talent that usually comes with high salaries for CEOs. So somebody running GM might make 10 or $15 million a year. And nobody really cares all that much in the U.S. There's some politicians, there's some people that might try to raise a stink. But for the most part, people are okay paying CEOs a lot of money. That's something that the culture is generally okay with right now. Now, Carlos could have gone to GM. He could have gotten that fat paycheck every single year, $15 million. Nobody really would have bat an eye in the U.S. You go over to Japan, the culture is very different there. CEOs do not make millions of dollars in Japan. That's not something that's common there. It's really frowned upon in their culture. So Carlos did not disclose how much money he was making because at the time, you did not need to disclose that until laws changed in Japan, forcing CEOs to disclose how much money they were making. That's where this runs into trouble. In 2009, 2010, so Japanese law changes and um, people are suddenly required to disclose their executive compensation. So at the time, you take a, a pretty hefty pay cut, but did you feel that you were worth, worth more than, than you were being paid? Without any doubt, and people around me particularly were very worried because they knew that a lot of other companies were turning around me. Uh, uh, I shared with some people the fact that I was approached to become the CEO of General Motors. This happened in 2009. So the fact that I decided by myself to reduce my pay limited to 1 billion yen. And at the same time, the fact that other people were approaching me to get me uh, out of my job created some anxiety. 
So in 2010, Japan passes these disclosure laws saying that you have to show how much money you're making, executive compensation. Carlos is in a situation where he's making a lot more money than is the norm in Japan. To avoid backlash, he artificially lowers his compensation. He takes a pretty big pay cut just to avoid public perception, public backlash. And he's asked here in this interview, well, do you think that you were underpaid? And he says, of course, you know, this created a lot of anxiety around the company that I was going to leave and go to a foreign country that would pay me a lot more. Uh, this, this feeling that you, were, you say you were undoubtedly underpaid for, for what you were doing, is that what kind of led you to consider, you know, various options to, to pay yourself more without disclosing it? I didn't say, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to cut my compensation, but you guys are going to have to figure out how I'm going to get it back. It doesn't make sense. So they started brainstorming by themselves about how could it be made. They came to me. I said, look, I would not accept anything which is not legal. Uh, so they brainstormed a lot. Uh, I was listening to a lot of proposal, but none of this proposal was put in action because at the end of the day, the real test is, was it legal? And then as some of them were not legal or were limit legal, we decided not to do them. So these disclosure laws put him in this weird situation where he was trying to get around showing how much money he was making. He didn't want to take that big of a pay cut and just not get any money in return. So he bounced around a bunch of ideas that he says he didn't want to do anything that was illegal, but he wanted to find a way where he could defer the amount of payments that he received until his exit from Nissan. So that was the strategy that they ended up going with is what he wanted to do was say, I'm going to take millions and millions of dollars less in compensation right now but Nissan will owe me that money when I exit the company. So in five or so years, I'll get that money at the tail end of it. Um, that is where the Japanese government is saying that he violated the disclosure laws. But he's saying, no, I didn't violate the disclosure laws. I didn't get paid that money. That's not compensation that I get. So I was going to disclose it when I got paid it. So it's a disagreement on how that law works. But you can see financial misconduct. This is very complicated stuff. It gets really nitty gritty into these rules. Next, he's asked if he wants revenge against the people that did this against him. No, I don't care about revenge. That's, that, I'm not going to spend waste my, my time for this. I want my rights back. Yes, I want my rights back. And uh, Nissan owes me a lot of money, and they're going to owe me much more than what they think. So this one, yes, I want it back. That response is just funny to listen to. The gall of this guy, he, he escaped. He fled Japan. He was on bail on house arrest with cameras trained on his home. He was awaiting to be charged in a, a place where they have a 99% conviction rate. So he orchestrates this whole escape from the country, gets out. He's doing interviews with Wall Street Journal and CNBC and everybody else. And now he's pointing his finger at Nissan and saying, you owe me. You owe me a lot of money. I want all my rights back. I want my name cleared. Pretty interesting to see this. He could just really lay low, keep out of the spotlight, you know, not draw any attention to himself and just consider himself lucky. But no, he's making this all very public. Interesting to see. Now, I have to say that Nissan does deny the characterization that Carlos has given them. They're saying that Carlos always wanted more money, that he was finding out schemes to earn more money, and that he would have received a fair trial in Japan. So even though it has statistically over a 99% conviction rate, they're saying he would have received a fair trial. So... They have both sides of it there, but it's interesting to see this play out. Okay, let's get to some emails here. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. Joseph Carlson Show at gmail.com. The first one is from Jacob. He says, Hi, Joseph. I just finished watching episode 63, and I've enjoyed seeing the journey of your portfolio slash dividend gains and subscriber gains too. My wife and I have been investing since the end of 2016 and own several of the same dividend growth stocks in our portfolio as you, Apple, Comcast, Disney, Microsoft, Verizon, Visa. So you could say that we have similar investing ideologies. 
Our biggest single position is Disney. About a month ago, I noticed that Disney has not raised their dividend for their upcoming payout. I don't think this was a complete shock since their CFO alluded to this during their Q3 conference call, but I was almost expecting the symbolic one penny raise. I was hoping that you might touch on this topic in one of your upcoming videos and how this plays into your dividend growth strategy and what your plan is regarding Disney going forward. Also, just curious what your reaction was when you heard the news. Personally, we are happy holding Disney, even without the dividend growing for the time being, as this should help them pay down their debt and focus more aggressively on reinvesting in their business. Thanks so much for the weekly updates. All the best, Jacob. Okay, Jacob, this is the reason that I look at more than just the numbers. So some investors, they're very rule-based, right? They want to be very systematic, very strategic with their investments. So they just set out a specific group of rules and that's the only thing that they look at. Now, my portfolio is very rule-based. It's based off of, of dividends, specific type of income, certain metrics with it, but it also incorporates the companies behind it. You can't just look at the numbers. Qualitative research is important. Looking at what the company does, looking at what they sell, the quality of their services, the moat that they have, the ability of other competitors to come in and steal their lunch. You have to look at that with the companies that you're buying. You're buying ownership in these companies, take a look at what you're buying. So if you're not investing just in ETFs, if you're investing in ETFs, you don't need to do research on specific companies. But Disney is a great example of a company that as far as the dividend goes, it's a very small dividend. They haven't been raising it too aggressively, but it's a company that I really like. Despite the dividend being a very low initial payout and they're not raising it currently, they're doing such good things with the money that they have currently that I believe it's a holding worth having, and it's even moved up to the top spot in my consumer pie. So I have it above Costco because I think the future of Disney is very bright. That's something that I've been saying for a while is I think that Disney Plus will do better than even people are assuming it will do. That's my opinion on it. I don't know if that will happen, but that's how I feel about the service right now. I look at Disney's past and look at what they've been able to accomplish. This is one of the most well-ran histories of a company that I've seen. Uh, you have Bob Iger getting them Pixar, Lucasfilms, 21st Century Fox, Marvel. He assembled probably the, the best media properties in the world all in one company. And then on top of that, he didn't lag behind with the direction and the technology of what they're doing for streaming. They're one of the first players to come out with a pretty awesome library of content that's direct to consumer, that works really well on every single device, and that is at a very cheap price point. I like every single step that Disney has done. Now, I compare that to companies like AT&T, that I did an entire video just going through all the missteps and huge blunders that they've made that has cost them severely. Tons of debt. They've made all sorts of poor investments. So that's one that they pay a good dividend, but the story is not as good as Disney's. I think Disney has had a great story in the past. I think that they will have one in the future. Um, their stock was pretty flat for about five years up until just recently with the streaming service. So I still think that they have a lot of runway to grow once this streaming service really starts getting big numbers. So right now I'm very bullish on Disney. It's a company that I have no problem buying more and more ownership of. And I do like that they pay dividends. So they pay dividends, but they're saying we can wait on that. We can put more money into our company right now. And then when we have more excess money to work with, after we gain a lot of subscribers, you know, after we're generating more cash flow, then we can pay more of it back to investors. I'm willing to wait for that. So the company's good enough that I'm willing to put the dividend on hold, have it be something that it's just a, a small portion right now and build a stake in it because I think later on they'll continue to raise that dividend. So 
it's a great company and I don't have any problem with it being the biggest holding in your portfolio. I don't think that you're making a mistake there. But the timeline I'd have for Disney is at least three years if you're going to buy them now. Dan says, good morning, Joe. First, I just wanted to say that I love the channel. I've been watching you since I've started my investment journey only from October 2019. And along with loving the dividend investment strategy, which I have adopted myself, I love the longer 40 minute knowledge filled episodes that you produce along with watching your portfolio grow, which makes you stand out from other YouTubers with similar content. Keep up the awesome work. In the beginning, only several months ago, I was investing in companies like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, similar to yourself. However, because I live in Kent, England, the county underneath London, I realized that these may not be the smartest investments with Brexit around the corner. I don't know if you know much about what's going on here, but every time we are getting closer and closer to leaving the EU, our pound is getting stronger and stronger. So investing in companies that are outside the UK makes our investments weaker in turn. I think that's right anyway. Gets a bit confusing when you're buying something in dollars with pounds, and then when you sell dollars to pounds, it's like working with two stocks at the same time. Would you suggest in investing in whatever company I feel right, regardless of foreign exchange prices, or go to Winchester, have a pint, and wait for this whole thing to blow over, and invest in UK companies for the time being? Thank you, Dan. Dan, I think that you should build holdings in the best companies that are available to you. So that's my opinion. I, these exchange rates and the different fees, whether you're investing overseas in Europe, if there's a company that I think was the best company that was an opportunity in Europe, I would start buying ownership of it. That's my opinion on it. It might diminish your returns in the near term with the exchange rates, but whether you're in Canada and you're investing in the US, you know, there's exchange rate issues there that you can have. There's exchange rate and currency issues that you can have there or Europe and Britain to the US. The same thing can happen. Buying good companies, if you pick the right companies, it will more than make up the difference. If you invest at the best companies that have the best growth potential, then it will completely outweigh any problems you have with currency. Now, as far as home country bias, whether you should prefer investing in your home country or other countries, I think it's healthy to have a level of home country bias where you look around at the companies in your country before seeking investments outside of it. So I would pick the low hanging fruit that's available to you. The ones that are in the UK that are good companies that you can buy ownership in right now. I would invest in those companies first, but I wouldn't only limit yourself to those companies. So if you're not able to become adequately diversified, if you're not really finding the investments you want in the UK, I would just bite the bullet and start investing overseas and finding what you think are the best companies that you want to be an owner of. Tony says, first of all, I really enjoy your videos. Thank you for sharing this information with all of us. I always hear to buy a stock on the dip. How much of a dip? 5%, 10% more? Thanks. So a couple things with this question, Tony. One of them is make sure the reason the stock is dipping is not because of a very valid reason, you know, a fundamental problem with the company. So if the stock is dipping for some kind of artificial concern that you think will be very temporary, a good example of that is when Costco stock dipped a lot when Amazon bought Whole Foods. So Amazon bought a, a grocer and then Costco's stock went down a lot. Now, I know people personally that bought a lot of Costco stock when that happened because they thought the reason of it going down in price was ridiculous. They didn't think that it amounted to anything. So a situation like that, that happens, you certainly can take advantage of it. Just try to identify if it is going to go back up in price. If you think that this is an artificial temporary reason that it will rebound in price eventually. Um, As far as 5% or 10%, I think the best strategy is to do a very condensed version of dollar cost averaging. So if the stock is dropping, you know, it drops 5%, Put in some of your money held on the side. If it drops more, put in more of your money. Dollar cost average into it on a more aggressive schedule. 
don't put all of your money in right at the beginning because then you have nothing left if it keeps dropping. So I like to put some money in at the side, just dollar cost average on a more condensed, aggressive schedule if a company you really like is dropping in price. That's the strategy that I would recommend. Brian says, greetings, Joseph. I have an inheritance coming and between that and selling my house for $210,000 profit, I should have around $650,000 by the end of the year available to me. I've been watching your program and another investor, Dave Ramsey, and I'm conflicted. Buy a house outright with all the money that comes in or dump it into dividend type stocks as you're doing, but continue to rent. I'm wondering what you would do if this opportunity was yours. By the math, it seems like I would have roughly 10 times your investments and therefore 10 times the dividends working for me. In the long run, it looks better. But then again, having a house free and clear is a sure thing that would empower me to invest aggressively afterwards. Thank you for your videos. I appreciate your analysis and hope to hear from you regarding my situation, Brian. Okay, Brian. So the first question I have is if you're considering buying a home outright, my question would be, why don't you just pay down your current home instead of selling it? Uh, I'm going to assume that you just have some reason that you need to move or something like that, that you need to say that you need to sell your house. Uh, but regarding your, your basic question here, you have $650,000. This is a big windfall, a big amount of money. The choice between buying a house or investing it is a pretty tough one. If I was in your situation, I am fairly confident that I would buy a home outright before investing the money. That would be the first thing that I do. So I would pick a home that does not take $650,000 though. I would not use anywhere close to all of that money. You can buy, depending on where you live, a pretty decent home for about half that price. So unless you're in LA or something like that, you can buy a pretty decent home and have hundreds of thousands of dollars left over to invest. That is a good starting point for an investment to have your home owned outright plus a couple hundred thousand dollars to invest. I think that's a very good situation. Puts you in the least amount of risk, puts you in the least amount of stress. You kickstarted your investments. Uh, you won't be dreading if your investments drop at all. You know, if your home price goes down, it doesn't matter because you own it. It just makes sense to me to own your home. That's one thing that I think makes sense to own. You have to live somewhere. You may as well own your house. I would just emphasize again, I would not spend all $650,000 on a house. I would try to spend up to about half of that. Okay, so we have the last question here. Hello, Joseph. What if the U.S. national debt was paid off and we have a balanced budget? Will the stock market and the economy in general be better, the same, or worse? I've heard that debt has to be present in order to make money. Thank you. Um, okay, so this is an interesting hypothetical. What would happen if the U.S. paid off all of its debt? We had no national $23 trillion debt. Um, that would be an interesting scenario. We wouldn't have treasuries, so no treasury notes. Those wouldn't exist. So investments in general would be different. Nobody would be able to just store their wealth in treasuries. That would force you to put your money in other things. Um, I first want to address the last sentence of this question, though. I've heard that debt has to be present in order to make money. This whole idea that you need to have debt for an economy to grow, I think, is a mischaracterization of how wealth is generated. So on an economic level, you don't have any kind of wealth generation without production, without labor. There's, if there's nobody producing something, there's no labor, there's no production, there's no debt, there's nothing that follows that. It all originates from production. That's where it originates. So saying that debt has to be present, I, I think it's just a mischaracterization. Production has to be present in order to make money. You have to produce something. 
um, debt is what naturally follows. Because if I go to work and I produce something, let's say I'm a fisherman, I go and I, I catch a bunch of fish, I'm producing something. I'm bringing in fish and then I can sell those. And then what I do is I, I store some of the money that I'm making from selling these fish. That's stored labor. I have stored labor. Now, what I can do with that stored labor is lend that out to somebody else, right? That's where debt comes into the picture. If I didn't go out and catch those fish, I have no stored labor to lend to somebody else. So the equation falls apart if you don't have production in the mix. And people that think that spending is what creates economies, I think they have it wrong. Production is what creates economies. That's where you get the money to lend out to other people. If you lend out more money than you have production for too long, that's where you go into a, a, a bad situation where you are now in a situation where you have to produce a lot more than you consume. You have to, for a long period of time in order to pay back your debts, you have to overproduce, underconsume to pay back the difference in what you lend it out. Now, that is exactly what a lot of people think is going to happen with the U.S. economy if the debt continues to grow at a faster pace than the GDP. So if the national debt grows faster than our GDP does for long enough, there's going to be a time where we have to produce more, consume less, lend out less, you know, continue our production and pay off our debt. So that's something that's going to have to happen. Um, now, the major question, what would happen with the stock market, with the economy? I think that if I was going to try to impress the U.S. to move in one direction or the other, I would definitely push us to move into the less debt direction. So if we were able to reduce our debts drastically, I think that would be overall better for the stability of the nation, for the people that we owe debts to. It would make them more confident in our ability to pay it back. Um, I think it would reduce the chance of inflation. I just think it would have a lot of positive benefits. Right now, Jerome Powell, the Fed chairman, says we are on an unsustainable path, meaning the U.S. cannot keep going at this pace of spending where we spend more than we produce. That's simply what we're doing doesn't work with a family budget. You can't keep spending more than you produce for too long. It eventually catches up to you. And then it's painful when it does. We're doing the same thing with the U.S. economy. We're spending more than we produce. We're giving out more money to people than we take in. And eventually that's going to catch up to us and somebody's going to have to pay back those debts. So I want us to move in the direction where we pay back the debts, where we uh, get more close to the point of a balanced budget. I think that would be a good thing. But frankly, I don't think really either side of politics, whether you go to Democrats or Republicans, it does not seem like people are too worried with really paying down the budget. It's just, how do I spend this money? You know, how do we spend this money? It's it's them getting their way of spending the money the way they want to spend it. Nobody's really concerned with paying down the debt as far as I can see. But that would be my thoughts. I think that we would be better off across the board if we were able to pay off our debts. I think that would put us in a, in a much better financial position. But, and I also think that as far as debt's concerned, don't let people talk you into believing that just running up debts is how economies are built. Producing things is how economies are built. We have companies like Apple and Microsoft, companies that produce products. They sell a lot of them. That is what generates economic wealth, not running up spending. Okay, well, that's going to be all of it for this video. If you guys have any questions, remember you can email me at josephcarlsonshow at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter. There are links in the description of the video. Otherwise, I will talk to you guys next time.